And on this Sunday after Christmas, I really want us to explore this very familiar passage. If you know the story of the birth of Jesus, uh, and you keep reading much at all, you'll run into some of these truths. But Luke 2 really is a vital chapter. It's a chapter of truth, and everything you find in Luke 2 really is consequential. It's very important to take in each intricate detail of what's recorded in these Gospels, and it's here for us to consume. It's rich truth, it's good, it's wonderful, but my heart today is that in this Gospel of Luke, in this familiar story, that we would find yet another layer of hope. What the world needs is hope. My heart today, when I got out of the bed, I needed something that in which I could find hope. We all need hope. Some of you here today, Christmas was very, very difficult. Your heart was broken. You're bereaved. It wasn't the same. Many of you stood a couple Sunday nights ago, almost 100, in front of this platform, indicating that you need prayer, that you need help, that the Lord is going to have to help you through this season of difficulty. And what you need this morning as you come into God's Word, into this powerful story, is hope. Everyone here today needs hope. If you're watching online, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook or watching the TV program later on or in the archives, you need hope. Well, I have good news. Hope is here, and it's found in this incredible story in Luke 2. And as we dive right back into this post-Christmas story I want you to make a note about Luke and the way that Luke tells the story. His gospel is significantly different in many ways than Matthew or John. Really, Matthew is focused in his gospel on the historical perspective. He really is into the detail, the history. John is very interested and writes about the divine aspect of Jesus' birth and all that took place. And all of these accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all agree with one another. And when you take that truth into context, that these three men took these stories, told them in their own way, yet they hold each other up perfectly, there is no contradiction, there is no uh, issue or question juxtaposed against one another. This is more proof, this is more uh, in-your-face reality that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, holy, inspired Word of God without error. Uh, really, at this point, I, I feel like if someone would take enough time to understand everything in context about our Bible, it would take more faith not to believe what we find here than it takes to actually embrace the truth of God's Word. It's an incredible, incredible book. Now, Luke is a great writer. He's consistent in what he writes. He's faithful in what he writes. He keeps the story intact. He was very historically in context, intact. Everything is perfect in the way that he is writing this through divine inspiration. But Luke writes his gospel leaning into the need, leaning into the tradition, if you will, of what the Jewish reader would need from the story. A Jewish reader the Jews so required that a truth be told from the mouth of more than one witness. 
The Jews, especially in the Old Testament, you will find that everything that is said, everything that is done is confirmed, is validated by more than one person. It was part of their culture. It was a part of affirming truth. Luke does this exact same thing. Luke leans into the necessity of the Jewish reader and he, through eyewitness accounts, he proves and he points and he shows just who it is this child born in Bethlehem is. And he does it through multiple eyewitness accounts. But this morning, there are three eyewitnesses to the birth of Jesus Christ and post-birth that point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the sinless, perfect man, all God, all man who died for us. Now, these three witnesses, these three eyewitnesses, not only does he want to take their story into account, but he wants to prove to you, he wants to show you, Luke is desperate for you to understand that the people he is quoting are righteous people. These are good people. These are people that God has selected specifically for the job in which he has given them to undertake or the instance where they run in to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So the two first eyewitnesses that we'll very briefly touch on are those two people, Mary and Joseph. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Now let's go to Luke 2. Let's go down to the 21st verse and we'll read a few of these verses just for context of where we are. Jesus has been born, verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according that which is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And it came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. Heavenly Father, for just a few minutes, we come back into your presence. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit of God that is moving in hearts today. God, for the sweet presence that we have felt here. God, we thank you for Christmas, the implications of Christmas, the truth that it happened now, Father, for a few minutes as we preach your word, God, as we study each verse and understand the truth that you have for us, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would empty me of self. Use me according to your will for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. 
Amen and amen. So here we are, eight days. Eight days after Jesus is born. And this is the law, this is the custom. Mary and Joseph are following that of a law-abiding, law-keeping Jew. And it's eight days Jesus has been born. And now it is time for his circumcising and his naming. He would not receive his name nor be circumcised until eight days. They are following that to the law. Now, very quickly, there are a few truths I want you to jot down about Mary and Joseph because I want you to take these truths with you on this journey to these three eyewitnesses that Luke is using to hold up the truth of who Jesus is. These truths here pertain to Mary and Joseph. Number one, they were righteous. They were righteous. Mary and Joseph were part of the remnant of Israel. They were true believers. They were still holding near and dear to what the prophet had said 400 years ago when our Old Testament is closed. We hear the prophecy that's given that there will be one coming, one with healing in his wings. And as Malachi closes, we go into 400 years of silence. Now Mary and Joseph are still holding true to what the prophet has said. These are good people who are following the Lord to the best of their ability. Much of that qualification of Mary is found in Luke chapter 1. You can start about verse 28 and go all the way to verse 47 and you'll get a glimpse of what Mary is and how God dealt with Mary and even look at the heart of Mary, how she responds to the Lord. And much of Joseph, we can see a glimpse of him, his response to the angel of the Lord in Matthew 1. So these were righteous people, righteous people. Number two, not only were they righteous, but they were part of that remnant the remnant searching for the Messiah. They'd not given up. They believed that he would still come. Number three, they observed the law. Mary and Joseph observed the law. Verse 21 is our proof. Now when all the, we go back to Luke 2, 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now not only are they keeping the law. They're acknowledging that this is the Son of God. They're obeying what God had told them through the angel to name him Jesus. So they are law-observing, righteous Jews. And number four, they believe that their son was who the angel of the Lord said he was. They gave him the name Jesus. They obeyed that commandment given by the Lord to name him Jesus. If they would have had any doubt or if they didn't believe anything that had been said to them or if they thought it was just some wild dream, uh, they would have not named this child Jesus. But as they're there is his circumcision, uh, holding up the custom, holding up the law, they ask what his name is and Mary names him Jesus. They believed who their son was. Now there's something in verse 22 that I want you to get and you'll be blessed from this. It gives us an idea of Mary and Joseph and how they believed and what their hearts were feeling. Now in verse 22, we see that Mary has to go for purification. The custom, the law was that 40 days after giving birth to a male child, the woman had to go to the temple to be cleansed, to be clean. And then again, she could go back into the presence of God to worship. If it was a female child, it was 80 days. 
But according to the custom, according to the law, Mary goes for her purification ceremony and she goes to give a turtle dove or a pigeon as according to the law. The second thing they would have been doing there, not only would Mary have been going for her purification, but Jesus is the tribe of, born of the tribe of Judah. Now, what do we know about all of those babies born, the firstborn males that are not born of the tribe of Levi? They must pay a tax. They must give a five silver tax to the temple. It buys their right out of servitude to the temple. Now, Jesus was not a Levite, so they would have not only been there for Mary's purification and her ceremony, but they would have also paid the five silver shekels to be able uh, to get Jesus out of the servitude of the temple. It was the custom, it was the law. If he would have been a Levite, he would have not had to pay that because Levites, their male firstborn, become the priest. So when they go to take Jesus to the temple... They go for the ceremony for Mary. They go to pay the five silver pieces for Jesus' temple tax. But then it says that they presented him to the Lord. They presented him to the Lord. This was beyond ritual. This was beyond any sort of law keeping. This was from a heart of dedication from Mary and Joseph. They were saying, we know who this child is. We acknowledge who this baby is. And because we love him and we love the God that gave him to us, we want to have him dedicated here at the temple in Jerusalem. That was not the standing order. That's not how things were supposed to be. He would be given to the Lord at home in the city in which he was born or in the city in which he grew up. But for them to take him to the temple in Jerusalem and offer him there was saying out loud to everyone, this child is special. He is who he says he is. And we acknowledge it with our hearts because we want to give him back to the God. So there's a real heart, a real sense that these teenagers, remember this, these are clean, holy, righteous, law-keeping, good teenagers that God is using to change the world forever. And they're tender in their heart and they give back Jesus above the requirement from the bounty of their heart. These are wonderful young people. Wonderful young people who God has selected, who God is using, not in their ability, but in their cleanliness and their willingness to participate that they would live clean lives before God and that God would fill them and use them and do as he pleases. There's another message there for you, but we won't go there today. But praise the Lord, we establish these few truths about Mary and Joseph. We have a better understanding of who they are. Now, we go into this encounter and this is the meat of the message. Verse 25, we run directly head on into a man named Simeon. We know nothing about Simeon before we get here. And after these 10 verses that include Simeon, we have nothing else about Simeon. But this man named Simeon, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And so he comes to the temple led of the Spirit and runs into Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Now, we don't know if the purification had already happened. We don't know if the tax has already been paid. We don't know at what point this encounter happened. 
It could be that this had happened after purification, after the silver pieces had been paid, but because Mary and Joseph were devout and loved God and righteous and in that love, they wanted to dedicate him back further that this instance of running into Simeon happened in the first place. God was moving in this incredible story. Now, Simeon, let's really understand Simeon to the best of our ability within these 10 verses. Remember now, 400 years has gone by since Malachi's prophecy. Malachi 4.2 is a great indicator of what Malachi had been preaching. He says, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So the Old Testament closes the truth that the Messiah is coming. That's huge news. It's massive news. It's monumental news. It's news that will change everything. That the consolator, the comforter, the healer, the savior, he will come. Messiah is coming. That's where our Old Testament ends. But when we pick back up 400 years later in the New Testament, Israel is in a bad place. Israel is in a horrific condition. They're under Roman occupation. They are infatuated with themselves. They're infatuated with law keeping and with all the religious exercise. But at the end of the day, in Israel, when we open our Bibles into the New Testament, the overall condition of hearts is in a bad, bad place. Wickedness has set in. There's a small group of people like Mary and Joseph and Simeon, who were still holding on to the promise made by the prophet Malachi. They understood that it had come from God, that God cannot lie, that God keeps his promises. And there was a small remnant, a remaining group that still believed that God was going to do what he said he did. People that woke up every day with a heart of expectation that this could be the day the Messiah comes. That's who Simeon is. And that's who Mary and Joseph were, a small group that remained. Now, what we have access to of Simeon is small. It's only 10 or so verses. But I submit to you what we have access to is powerful. What we have access to in these 10 verses is enough. It's a wonderful story. It's so much truth. And before we dive deeper into this story, the name Simeon carries with it great indication of where this story is headed. Simeon in its root has an absolutely wonderful meaning. The name Simeon means God has heard. God has heard. So Simeon's here, we're at the temple, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus. But go back with me now when Simeon was a young boy He's eight, days, he's eight days old. He's at his circumcision. He's at his naming. And somehow through the providential hand of God, when his mama and his daddy looked down at that precious baby, their hearts were filled with something to look down and say, we need to call this baby God has heard. And this was an indication of the heart of Israel. There was a remnant that was looking for God, looking for the Messiah, who desired that king who would take care of the sin problem of mankind once and for all. Simeon's heart cry would be that of this. It would be that God would send a comforter, that he would hear their cry, that the king would come. 
And all of his life, he's cried to God. And now we find this man, we're introduced to him in the winter years of his life. And he sees the Messiah, he beholds the child, and then he tells God, because I have seen thy salvation, because you kept your word, I'm ready to die. What an incredible story. What an incredible man. Simeon believed what the prophets had said. Simeon never gave up holding on to the truth that we find in Malachi. And then we get to verse 25 again, the end of this verse. There's something here that we've got to understand. It says, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout. Just and devout. Now that may seem very simple. That seems like you can just drive by it very quickly. But ladies and gentlemen, those words to be attributed to Simeon are of such consequence. For God to say that someone is justified and for God to say that someone is absolutely devoted, that they're devout, is a really, really big deal. This is the type of man God called Simeon, just and devout. The justified would indicate that there was righteousness, that his sin had been justified by God, that God had forgiven him because only God can declare sinners justified. Only God can declare sinners righteous. God was saying that this old man up in his winter years who's been looking, who's been searching is a righteous man who is devout in all of his ways. Simeon is a powerful, powerful character. Devout to what though? We understand righteous, righteous in his actions, righteous in his heart, righteous in his ways, righteous in a way that's pleasing to God. But what was Simeon devout to? Simeon was devout. He was devoted to hope. Simeon never gave up on hope. All of his hope, all of his peace, all of his joy, all of the expectation of his entire life was directly tied to the coming of the Messiah and the promise that God had made him. Simeon never gave up on hope. He had hope for the coming king that would bring the promised kingdom. You see, Simeon believed exactly what was in the Davidic covenant. He believed what was in the covenant that was made with Abraham. He took the Old Testament at face value. He believed the stories of the prophets. This man was devout to what he believed. A good man. A man we can follow and watch as this story unfolds. Simeon was a particular kind of man desperately looking for the Messiah. You see, for a man to be just, for a man to be called devout in this time means that he would have had to have had a good understanding of the day in which he was living, the culture in which he was living. Simeon knew that the Pharisees were leading people down a road of legalism. He knew that the Sadducees were denying the divine power of God denying resurrection, denying the supernatural, denying the angels. He knew that the zealots were organizing insurrection and war against the Romans. They had become more infatuated with expelling the Romans than they had the truth. They took their eyes off the eastern sky. They took their eyes off of the city of David. They had stopped looking for the Messiah. 
They had missed the whole point. They were in love with themselves for being able to keep a law and missed the whole point of what was available for them. And Simeon would have known this. Simeon knew all that was wrong and he knew the truth. Simeon would have been a person that deeply cared about his people. And in the depths of his heart, Simeon's heart cry would have been, God, send him soon. My people need the truth. My people need sin handled forever. Simeon knew that the sacrifice of animals, the blood economy, that it couldn't last forever. That there would have to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect consolation of Israel. And he finds him in the person of Jesus Christ, in the form of a little baby, in the arms of his mother. Go to verse number 30. You'll see his reaction. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus come into the temple area led by the Holy Spirit. Here comes Simeon. Simeon notices Mary, Joseph. He looks in the arms of Mary. And something is different about this child. Something grips his heart like has never been gripped before. And the Holy Spirit of God whispers, that's him. That's him. And Simeon looks upon Jesus. And he says in verse 30, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. And what Simeon was referring to was something he would have heard thousands of times all of his life in Isaiah 40. Amen. Isaiah 40 verse number one says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins, the condition of Israel. Verse number three the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And there it was. God heard in the arms of Mary. And Simeon says, there he is. There's what I've been waiting for all my life. You see, it's one thing to wait on something for a day. It's one thing to wait on something for a month. It's another thing to wait on something for a year. But to wait on something 20, 30, 50, 75, 80 years, and then one day God keeps his promise. And every little beat, Jesus' heart, every little breath that he's taken in his mother's arms says out loud, God heard. God heard. 
God heard. And the word became flesh. The promise was kept. And now Simeon was so convinced and he was so satisfied with what he had seen, he said, I'm ready to die. Take me out of here. I've seen it. My people will have their Messiah. He picks up Jesus. He puts, his in him, puts little baby Jesus in his arms. I imagine Simeon with a long beard. Maybe he has to tuck the beard away to hold the infant. He holds Jesus in his arms. He leans back and looks into the sky, into the Holy of Holies. And look what he reads here in verse 29. Lord... Now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And then Joseph and his mother Mary marveled at those things which were spoken. Notice what Simeon does next. And Simeon blessed them. And then he said to Mary, his mother, notice he said it to Mary specifically. Behold, Mary, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And Mary, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And what Simeon does as he takes the child and prays over him and blesses him and then speaks to Mary and Joseph in just a few powerful sentences. Simeon, the old man from Jerusalem, encapsulates the entire gospel message and speaks it in love but with truth. God heard the Messiah is here. There's five things very, very quickly. I'll go fast. You write these down. Take them back. We don't have Sunday night tonight, so that means I get five extra minutes. It's in the rule books. I looked it up. <laughs> amen. Somebody say amen. 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 Thank you. Five things that will make your heart this Christmas, no matter where you are in life, Reach for more hope, more hope, more hope, and hopefully you will take this hope and store it up in your heart. There may be a more difficult day coming, and you'll need the truth of this incredible, incredible story. Simeon's prayer captures the truth of the gospel in five ways. Number one, the gospel brings hope. The gospel brings hope. Simeon started with the fact that he is utterly satisfied. He has so much hope, so much confidence, so much belief that this is the Messiah, this is the child that he says, all right, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. Get me out of here. That's hope. Hope for his people. It wasn't just about Simeon, but about all the people he loved, about all of Jerusalem, about all of Israel. And even today in the world in which we are living, in some of the darkest times of culture, in some of the darkest times our republic has ever experienced, the gospel message of Jesus Christ still brings hope. It's hope. It's the hope that you need. 
It's the hope that's immovable. It's the hope that's not corruptible. It's the hope that you can tie your entire existence to and never worry about it moving or changing. The gospel brings hope. Secondly, the gospel is secure in God's faithfulness. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, that my salvation, that the gospel message for me is not directly tied to a priest, to a pastor, or to a denomination. The gospel message and everything about the gospel is protected, encapsulated, totally in the hands of a faithful God who loves his people. And you'll never wake up and the gospel change. You'll never wake up and the Holy Spirit, the comforter, be gone. Great is thy faithfulness. The gospel is wrapped in the faithfulness of God. Man cannot change it. There is not a weapon on earth that can harm it. There is not a new piece of legislation or a new book or a new thought or a new theory or a new prophecy that can change the fact that the gospel is the gospel and that it belongs to God. It's directly tied to the faithfulness of who God is. God can tell no lie or he would not be God. God is God. And the gospel message that's for us, that brings us hope, is tied to him. Number three, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. One of my favorite songs from Vacation Bible School, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That sounds so simple, but that's everything you'll ever need. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And no matter what color your skin is, no matter how much money you have, no matter your pedigree or what side of town you live on or what college or what university you went to or how much money you have in your stock account, Jesus loves you. He died for you. He'll save you. And the gospel is for everybody. Don't ever let anyone say different. The gospel is for everyone. The best part for me personally of this prayer is where Simeon said, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that that is for me and for you? God could have left all of this grace, all of this mercy, and left it just for the people group called the Jews. But in grace and in mercy, he looked down at the Gentile puppy dog named Winston and said, I will be gracious to him. I will graft him in and he will have access just like my people, the Jews. That's how much God loves you. It's for everyone. Number four, the gospel is absolutely glorious. Why? Because it's about Jesus. Jesus was born. Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. He did it as all God and all man. When Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days, he was tempted as a man. When Jesus thirsted, he thirsted as a man. When his belly rumbled and he was hungry, he did it as a man. God cannot be tempted. God does not get thirsty. God does not get hungry. But he loved you so much that he wanted you to be able to relate to him in his humanity. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely the most glorious glorious thing you'll ever hear in your entire life. The greatest miracle that it was ever accomplished is when God became man on your behalf. Glory to his name. The gospel is glorious. You say, you're way too excited, young man. Boy, aren't you thankful that Jesus saves 
that we don't have to spend an eternity in hell. When the Green Bay Packers win the NFC Championship, I lose my mind. Why wouldn't I lose my mind and be thankful that God saved me from hell? Praise the Lord. The gospel's glorious. It's glorious. It's full of power. Man can't touch it. Democrats can't do anything to it. Republicans can't alter it. It's above the ebb and the flow of everything in this world. And it belongs to God and it belongs to us and it is glorious. Number five, the gospel is costly. It's costly. Godly people are supremely satisfied with understanding the cost of the gospel. Treasuring godliness, treasuring the gospel, it's always tested when following Christ costs you something. Mary and Joseph marvel at what Simeon says. Simeon says he is set for the fall. Mary and Joseph at this point are just now beginning to grasp and understand just exactly what that means. And then Simeon looks at Mary in the eye and says, your soul will be as if a sword has pierced it. This precious baby you are holding, you're going to grow up together. You're going to learn to love him like you've never loved anything before in your life. You'll hug him. You'll know what his aroma is. You'll know what his favorite meal is. All the tender intricacies of a mother, Mary would have got to experience with your Savior. And then Simeon grips her heart and says, He will die. He is set for the fall. And what Simeon was saying is that your precious son who will be tortured in the most horrific way and die in front of you will do it in God's perfect will. God's perfect will would be that his only son would be executed on my behalf. God's providence his love in the most unjustified, most evil event in human history. When my sin nailed God's son to my tree, it was in God's will. And Christian, listen to me. Christmas may have been the toughest day of your year yesterday. The condition of your life, the status of everything in your world seems to be falling apart. Would you please look back to the story and find hope that your hope, your peace can be tied to the person of Jesus above the ebb and flow of this life. And if you had a painful day yesterday, this is exactly what you need. You see, our response to the gospel, to Jesus, Miss Amber, you can help me. Our response to the gospel, listen to me now, 
Stay with me. Our response to the gospel according to the Bible. Not according to some health and wealth preacher. Not according to some sort of falsehood cooked up in a college somewhere. But the gospel message according to God is a costly gospel. And it will cost you something to follow him. Christianity is not some sort of cheap pleasure where you satisfy some sort of spiritual checklist. I went to church, check. I raised a hand, check. I wrote my tithe, check, check. It's so much more than that. The story of Christ is one of hope, it's one of love. But it comes wrapped in death, surrounded in the agony of sin's eternal damage to mankind. Following Jesus beckons us to pick up our cross and follow the example of Jesus that our flesh, our self, would die daily. That's what being a Christian is. It's a costly gospel. It may not be a popular gospel, but it is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You see, the reward waiting for us in heaven is far greater than any pleasure, any pleasure for a season of this earth. If we'll love him, if we'll follow him, if we'll obey him. And today our hearts should be challenged in multiple aspects. I see the devout heart of Simeon who is willing to wait to the end and be satisfied in simply receiving the good news that the promise was real and be able to say, God, take me. That was enough. My question to you, Trinity Baptist Church, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Is he truly enough? What does your heart long for? What does your heart desire? If God was looking in Asheville today for someone to take the place of Simeon, just and devout, would you be able to fill his shoes? God convicted me this week. Father, I I don't know if this week I could be called just and devout all week long, but my heart wants to be. Help me to grow. I want to be the pastor my people deserve. I want to be the husband my wife needs. I want to be the friend that can be counted on. But I can't do it unless you help me. I want more than to just check a box. I want to embrace the hope of who Jesus is and put all my eggs in that basket. And honey, until the day he comes, I just want to be putting in the storehouse. Work, love, passion, obedience for the person who saved me. That little precious baby that was in the arms of Simeon. Let's stand all over the building. We'll go now into a season of prayer. These altars are open as they always are. And you should come and pray if you need to come and pray. It's not about that someone would see you or that others would follow. 
This is a private time, the privacy, the chapel of our heart. It's not about my husband, my wife, my friend, the people behind me. It's about me. I want everyone in this building to raise your hand. Raise your hand. Everyone in this building that's able to raise a hand. This is for me. And if your hand's up, you're me. Allow the Holy Spirit of God now. Follow your hand back down to here. And let's allow the Holy Spirit of God to inspect us. Quit worrying about things going on after church. The game will be there. Lunch will be there. We'll survive. We'll make it. Unless you're sick or have to go to work, let's be still. Let's seek the face of God. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and in your heart. If there are things today that you know need to change, if devout is not a category in which you fit in because of simple sin in your life, today's the day. Come home. Change. If you're here today and you're lost and you're undone, you don't know what it is to live in the freedom and the peace of knowing Jesus personally. Do not leave this building until you get it settled. Do not allow pride to send you into eternity without that assurance.